At 6.30 a.m. on the morning of June 30, 1934, Ernst Röhm was sleeping peacefully in his hotel room in Bad Vici, Germany. He had a big day ahead of him. The Führer had called on him to organize a meeting of some of the Nazi party's most senior members that afternoon. But Rome's beauty sleep was interrupted when someone barged into his room unannounced. In his half-asleep state, he could barely process the words he was hearing, Rome, you are under arrest. Raising his head from the pillows, Rome was greeted with an unimaginable sight. Adolf Hitler brandishing his signature riding whip, two pistol-wielding policemen by his side. Surely this must be a dream or perhaps a misunderstanding. All Rome could utter was a weak, Heil, my Führer. But Hitler's anger wouldn't be tamed. He told the officers to arrest Rome and then stormed out of the room. He had bigger problems to deal with. It was early, and the purge of his enemies had just begun. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. For our first six episodes, we're exploring the lives of World War II's major dictators, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, and Adolf Hitler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is part two on our third and final World War II dictator, Adolf Hitler. Last week, we examined his rise to power as he went from an insignificant rabble-rouser to one of the most powerful men in Europe. This week, we'll examine Hitler's iron grip on Germany and how it allowed him to pursue the genocidal Holocaust while instigating World War II. January 30th, 1933, marked one of Adolf Hitler's greatest triumphs. Thirteen years after he had founded the Nazi party, the 43-year-old was finally appointed as Chancellor of Germany. But Hitler's dream of unfettered power wasn't yet complete. He still had two checks on his authority in the form of German President Paul von Hindenburg and Vice Chancellor Franz von Papen. Both men largely agreed with the Nazis' nationalist, anti-Semitic platform. But they were wary of Hitler's ambition to turn Germany into a one-party fascist state like Italy. They hoped to implement the Nazis' version of a homogenous Aryan society while still maintaining a democratic government. However, Hindenburg and Papen had made a crucial mistake. They assumed Hitler could be reasoned with. Now that he was chancellor, Hitler was even more determined to become an absolute dictator. Although he could do little about Hindenburg and Papen, 
he could take immediate action to strengthen his base. Just one day after taking office, he convinced Hindenburg to hold new parliamentary elections. On the surface, the election's purpose was for the German people to shape what was being called a government of national solidarity. In reality, Hitler wanted to leverage his position to win a Nazi majority. From there, he could pass any legislation that he wanted. Worried that the German communists and other left-wing parties would foil his plans, Hitler influenced Hindenburg to pass laws restricting free speech and assembly. With the liberals effectively muted, Hitler unabashedly spread anti-communist propaganda over the airwaves. And on February 27, 1933, he got his opportunity to crush them once and for all. That night, Germans' parliamentary building, the Reichstag, erupted in flames. When Hitler arrived at the scene, he placed the blame firmly on the communists' shoulders. Historians are divided on whether or not the Nazis secretly orchestrated the attack. Regardless of who was behind it, Hitler used the Reichstag fire as an excuse to take immediate action against Germany's Communist Party, the KPD. By sunrise on the 28th, almost every KPD Reichstag deputy had been arrested. Within a few weeks, nearly 10,000 political prisoners were in custody. Hitler used his authority as chancellor to make sure they never stood in his way again. On March 20th, the Nazis announced the opening of their first concentration camp in the town of Dachau. Like the gulags in the Soviet Union, it was meant as a place of punishment for political prisoners. Many of those arrested in the wake of the Reichstag fire were probably sent to Dachau. The brutal treatment they received there was a harbinger for things to come during the Holocaust. The camp also served as a powerful deterrent for anyone dreaming of standing up to Hitler. In the parliamentary elections, the Nazis took 43.9% of the vote. It wasn't a complete majority, but it was enough to bend the other parties to their will. Only three days after the Dachau camp was opened, the Reichstag passed the Enabling Act, which gave Hitler emergency powers to unilaterally pass laws without approval from the Reichstag or President Hindenburg. Hitler was now free to pursue his agenda without restraint. Almost immediately upon the Enabling Act's passage, Hitler enacted state-sponsored anti-Semitism. In his rise to power, Hitler had blamed Germany's Jewish people for their society's ills. He vowed to make conditions so unbearable for the country's Jews that they would emigrate in search of greener pastures. On April 7, 1933, he enacted the Civil Service Law, which forced all Jewish state employees into early retirement, along with anyone who was considered politically unreliable. It was the first of many anti-Semitic steps Hitler would take that ultimately resulted in the Holocaust. In addition to purging Germany of its Jewish people, one of Hitler's promises was that he'd free the country from the restrictive Treaty of Versailles. Enacted after World War I, it had crippled the German economy with massive reparations, severely weakened the military, and stripped the country of territory with valuable natural resources. 
The first action Hitler took in this regard was to rebuild the German military, known as the Wehrmacht. To do so, he had the National Bank approve a military budget of 35 billion German marks, worth approximately $165 billion today. However, Hitler's ambitious plan had to be put on hold when challenges to his authority arose. Now that the Nazis were in firm control of the government, the stormtroopers, known as the SA, were left twiddling their thumbs. In the Nazis' rise to power, the paramilitary SA was deployed to physically intimidate Hitler's rivals. With nobody left to attack, the SA was forced to the sidelines. Hoping to carve out more power for himself, SA Chief of Staff Ernst Röhm lobbied to give the organization a more defined role in the newly expanded military. But Hitler wasn't so sure. By mid-1934, the SA had 4.5 million members. If Rome gained too much power, he could mobilize his forces to depose Hitler and become the new Führer. As the schism within the party grew, another one of Hitler's allies plotted against him. In June 1934, Vice-Chancellor Franz von Papen became a vocal critic of Hitler's unchecked power. The Nazis suspected Papen was angling to succeed President Hindenburg, who was deathly ill. Hindenburg was content to let Hitler do as he pleased, but Papen could wield the office to rein the chancellor in. Hitler knew he was vulnerable. He decided to launch a preemptive strike against his rivals. In the early hours of June 30th, Hitler personally arrested Rome as the SA commanders slept in his hotel room. Throughout the day, 200 of the SA's highest-ranking officers were arrested. Many were shot on sight. Franz von Papen was arrested as well. He was placed under house arrest, and two of his colleagues were murdered. Somewhere between 60 and 400 people lost their lives during this bloody event, which Hitler labeled the Night of the Long Knives. It firmly cemented Hitler's power as Germany's supreme leader and gave him the authority to pursue any policy he wanted. Nobody outside the country was all that interested in limiting his power either. Even though the Treaty of Versailles expressly forbade Hitler's rampant militarization, Western European powers, Britain and France, didn't take any action to stop it. With the horrors of World War I still fresh in their minds, they wanted to avoid war at all costs. To the east, Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union was more focused on its domestic issues. The communist dictator preferred to strengthen his own empire before becoming involved in foreign affairs. In the south, Hitler used his growing strength to create ties between Nazi Germany and Benito Mussolini's fascist Italy. In October 1935, Mussolini invaded the African state of Abyssinia. In a situation mirroring the 1980s Iran-Contra affair, Hitler secretly provided weapons to the Abyssinians while also exporting materials to Italy for the war effort. The gambit paid off. Mussolini became reliant on Hitler. The two leaders formed a bond that led to their eventual alliance in World War II. As Hitler improved Germany's standing abroad, he made life even more miserable for the Jewish people living within his borders. 
In the spring of 1938, he passed a series of anti-Semitic legislation that built on the repressive civil service law. Per the new legislation, Jewish-owned businesses couldn't bid on public contracts, Jewish communities weren't recognized as public bodies, and all Jewish people had to list all assets greater than 5,000 marks. The restrictive laws worked as Hitler had hoped. Many Jewish citizens felt it was better to try their luck somewhere else than to stay in Germany. But this decision came at a huge cost. Before they could leave, Jewish people were forced to pay a massive immigration tax. Essentially, they were stripped of all their assets and forced to start anew without a cent to their names. So far, Hitler had delivered on almost all of his promises. He had turned Jewish people into barely second-class citizens. He had restored Germany's military might. He had re-energized the German economy. There was just one thing he had left to do. Turn his country from a thriving state into a true European power. One of Hitler's main talking points was Germany's need for Lebensraum, or living room. In 1938, Germany's population was 68 million. He argued that as humanity's dominant culture, they would need room beyond their current borders. At the time, there were some 10 million ethnic Germans living in neighboring Austria and Czechoslovakia. Annexing those countries would allow Hitler to unite all German people under a single banner. In addition to creating an ethnically homogenous empire, annexing these lands would also come with the benefit of valuable resources for the Nazi war machine. Furthermore, the more Germany expanded to the east, the more pressure it would put on the communist Soviet government. Ever since Hitler was young, there had been a powerful nationalist German movement in Austria. As a schoolboy, he had been one of its most vocal supporters, and now, he had the chance to turn his dream of merging the two countries into reality. After Hitler took power, the calls to unite Austria with Germany became even stronger. By March 1938, the tide had fully turned in the Nazis' favor. It was time for Hitler to act. On March 12th, German troops marched across the border into Austria. The Austrians didn't put up any resistance. In fact, every town they went through on their way to Vienna greeted them with rapturous applause. Although it had been accomplished without bloodshed, the Nazis had subjugated a sovereign nation. But Europe's major powers didn't intervene. The only action taken was some weak verbal warnings from Britain and France. Although Germany certainly posed a danger, it wasn't worth going to war over when Austria welcomed its conqueror with open arms. But Hitler's desire to annex Czechoslovakia was another matter altogether. Although a significant portion of Austrians wanted to merge with Germany, there was only a vocal minority doing so in Czechoslovakia. However, that hardly mattered to Hitler. He was convinced that nobody would lift a finger in the Czech's defense if he tried to take the country by force. On the afternoon of May 28, 1938, Hitler proclaimed that Czechoslovakia would be annexed by October. But this time, Britain and France were determined to not let him get away with it. At least, not completely. 
In an attempt to stop Hitler's invasion, a summit was held on September 29th and 30th. Britain and France were on one side, Germany and Italy on the other. Czechoslovakia wasn't allowed to negotiate on its own behalf. Ultimately, the Western states agreed to let Hitler annex the Sudetenland, a region on the German-Czech border with a significant German population. It was a weak half-measure. Within six months, Hitler subjugated such large swaths of Czechoslovakia that it ceased to function as an independent state. Boosted by his increasingly bold actions abroad, Hitler's anti-Semitism shifted out of the legal arena and into the completely inhumane. Throughout the late summer and fall of 1938, he began the process of forcing Jewish people to register their faith. In addition to forcing them to officially add Israel or Sarah to their name, he invalidated any Jewish-German passport that didn't have the letter J stamped on it. As retaliation for the horrible conditions they were being subjected to, a young Jewish man named Herschel Grinishspan shot a member of the Parisian-German embassy on November 7th. The attack was the perfect excuse for Hitler to use the violence he had always craved. The night of November 9th, Nazi rioters attacked Jews throughout Germany. Hundreds of synagogues were burned to the ground. Over 7,000 Jewish-owned businesses were destroyed and looted. More than 100 Jewish people lost their lives that night. Those who were spared were completely humiliated. Many were forced to kneel in front of their burning houses of worship while the sadistic Nazis physically beat them. More than 30,000 Jewish people were taken to concentration camps. Hitler said they were all being punished for Grinishpan's attack, which he had only done to protest the horrific conditions his people were already forced to endure. Known as Kristallnacht, in reference to the ubiquitous sounds of breaking glass, that night represented a point of no return for Nazi Germany. Hitler had sanctioned state-sponsored violence against his own people, and nobody at home or abroad did anything to stop him. With Hitler's darkest impulses fully unleashed, it seemed like nobody could stop him. Coming up, Hitler's thirst for power reaches its height. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. In November 1938, the annexation of the Sudetenland and the brutal night of Kristallnacht cemented Adolf Hitler's power abroad and at home. Confident that Britain and France wouldn't risk going to war, Hitler set his sights on yet another target, Poland. Particularly, Hitler wanted to reacquire the port city of Danzig, which had been granted to Poland following World War I. But invading Poland posed several risks. In the wake of Hitler's actions in Czechoslovakia, 
France pledged to militarily intervene the next time Germany threatened another nation's sovereignty. Britain soon followed suit. Hitler wasn't particularly worried. The Western powers had talked tough before, but when push came to shove, they always wilted. However, Hitler had no such illusions about the Soviet Union. Annexing Poland would push German territory against the USSR's borders. And unlike the leadership in Britain and France, Hitler knew Stalin wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. Although Hitler relished the idea of going to war with the Soviets and wiping out so-called Jewish Bolshevism forever, Germany's military wasn't yet formidable enough for an all-out war with the USSR. If he wanted to conquer Poland, he'd need Stalin's help. Much to Hitler's pleasure, Stalin was willing to come to the table. He had his eye on Polish territory as well. On August 23, 1939, Hitler and Stalin signed a non-aggression pact that preemptively carved up Poland and other Eastern European states between the two of them. On September 1st, the German invasion of Poland commenced. Two days later, Britain and France declared war on Germany. Hitler had miscalculated. They were willing to fight after all. But they were too late to help Poland. Within a matter of weeks, Hitler had steamrolled his way through the country. And with the capture of swaths of Polish territory came horrific violence against the region's millions of Jewish people. The order came directly from Hitler. He reportedly told a subordinate that the nobility, clerics, and Jews must be done away with. The Nazi leadership was all too eager to obey. On the night of September 10th, a group of Polish Jews was forced into a church and violently massacred. And that was only the beginning. Over the next two years, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people throughout German territory were deported to Polish concentration camps and ghettos. But for the horrific conditions they were subjected to, the terrors of the Holocaust were yet to be implemented. For the moment, Hitler was more concerned with his looming battle with Britain and France. With the Western powers frantically building up their armed forces, Hitler knew he couldn't wait too long before they'd be too powerful for him to overcome. He had to strike as soon as possible. However, the morass of rainy autumn thwarted Hitler's desire for an immediate attack. Plans had to be reassessed, new strategies devised. The fluid situation meant Hitler couldn't give his usual long-winded speech to commemorate the 16th anniversary of his failed Beer Hall Putsch on the night of November 8, 1939. Instead of talking all night, Hitler cut the proceedings short a few minutes after 9 p.m. Less than 15 minutes after he left the stage, the pillar directly behind where he had been standing exploded. The failed assassination attempt had been carried out by a disgruntled German worker named George Elzer. Angry at the poor conditions for the overtaxed laborers, he didn't want to see the country plunge further into war. He was certain that by killing Hitler, the snake would be cut off at the head and peace would return. The failed attack had the opposite effect. The assassination attempt rallied the German people around Hitler even more. 
it didn't matter that the war effort was coming at the expense of the people's well-being. He was the Fuhrer, and they would do whatever it took to fulfill his vision of a global German empire. But even Hitler's outsized self-confidence had a limit. He knew better than to launch an offensive against France in the dead of winter. But the moment they could, the Nazis would strike. The date was set for May 10, 1940. The German forces steamrolled their way through Western Europe. Belgium and the Netherlands were helpless victims of the incursion into France. On June 14th, the German army entered Paris. The French surrendered three days later. From France, Hitler hoped to launch an offensive into Britain. But crossing the English Channel would be tricky. Despite Germany's furious rearmament, the British Navy unquestionably ruled the seas. In Hitler's mind, the only way to defeat them was in the air. Starting August 13th, Hitler sent wave after wave of air raids into British skies. And for the first time, the German forces were repelled. Despite the heavy bombing of London, Hitler was unable to force British Prime Minister Winston Churchill to surrender. Even though Great Britain was one small island, its global empire gave it near unlimited resources. If Hitler was going to emerge victorious, he'd have to get creative. Rather than facing Britain head-on, Hitler turned his attention to the Soviet Union. He believed that eradicating the Russians would create a domino effect, ultimately isolating the British. With the Soviets defeated, Japan would face no competition for Southeast Asian resources. The Japanese could then focus on their long-simmering tensions with the United States. In turn, the U.S. would be too tied up in the Pacific and unable to enter the European conflict. Therefore, Britain would be left on their own. And they'd be powerless to resist the overwhelming might of Hitler's forces. There was just one problem with Hitler's strategy. Stalin was his ally. In order to publicly justify an unprovoked attack on the USSR, he would have to mobilize the full force of the German propaganda machine. Hitler revived his vitriolic language against what he called Jewish Bolshevism. The way Hitler portrayed it, communists and Jews were a literal plague on society. The only way to create a prosperous Aryan community was to remove them from the planet altogether. With public opinion firmly in his favor, Hitler ordered his generals to begin planning the attack on the Soviets known as Operation Barbarossa. Beginning on June 22, 1941, Barbarossa initially seemed like it would follow the same patterns as Hitler's invasions of Poland and France. On July 3rd, German General Franz Halder remarked, It is no overstatement to say that the Russian campaign has been won in the space of two weeks. But Halder, just like his Führer, vastly underestimated his enemy. Although the Soviet army was under-equipped and poorly led, Stalin had virtually limitless reserves of men. Every time the Germans made an advance, a fresh batch of Russian soldiers was there to meet them.
Because of this numerical superiority, Hitler's forces were unable to achieve the quick victory he had envisioned. Instead, he was faced with the daunting task of continuing the fight throughout the Russian winter. The prolonged war had an indirect effect when it came to Hitler's opinion on the so-called Jewish question. His preferred method for expelling Jewish people from Europe was forced resettlement, not systematic genocide. But in order to do that, he needed somewhere to send them, somewhere his Aryan master race would never deign to live. In Hitler's mind, that place was somewhere in the vast reaches of Russia. But Operation Barbarossa's holdup threw a wrench into that plan. For the moment, many Jewish Germans and prisoners of war were being held in concentration camps and ghettos in captured Polish territory. However, the Nazi officials overseeing that territory didn't want to be responsible for them. Rather than waiting to send their Jewish prisoners further east, these officials started taking matters into their own hands. And Hitler did nothing to stop it. First, all Jews in German-occupied territory were forced to wear a yellow Star of David on their clothing. This marker made them easy targets for violence at the hands of their fellow citizens, or being rounded up on the street and sent to concentration camps simply for existing. Upon arriving at the concentration camps, the people deemed strong enough to work were forced into hard labor. Most of those who couldn't were sent to death camps like Auschwitz-Birkenau, where they were killed with the gas Zyklon B. By the fall of 1941, this system had become a well-oiled machine. The Holocaust was in full swing. Meanwhile, Operation Barbarossa was at a standstill. On October 2nd, the Germans mounted an attack on Moscow. But after over two months of fighting, the Soviet forces drove them back. Hitler's attempt to crush the USSR before the winter had failed, and he had more than a bitter Russian winter to contend with. On December 7, 1941, Japanese planes launched a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. The very next day, the U.S. declared war on Japan. And because of a pre-existing agreement between the Germans and the Japanese, Hitler declared war on the Americans three days after that. What had largely been a European conflict was now truly another world war. Under the leadership of President Franklin Roosevelt, the Americans didn't hesitate to fight in both the Pacific and European theaters. Knowing that the Allied American and British forces could launch an attack on the European continent at any moment, Hitler made a final effort to bring his war with Stalin to an end. On August 23, 1942, the Nazis launched an attack on the Russian industrial center of Stalingrad. In addition to producing important military goods, the city also had a symbolic value. It was named after Stalin himself. But once again, the Soviets were hard to overcome. As thousands of German troops were engaged in prolonged street-by-street -street warfare in Stalingrad, the Allies finally made their move. On November 8th, combined American and British forces made landfall in North Africa. From there, they would establish a foothold on the Mediterranean. Soon, they would make their way to the European continent. And Hitler would have no way to stop them. Coming up, 
Hitler's tyranny meets its end. Now back to the story. In the summer and fall of 1942, 53-year-old Adolf Hitler and the German army came under significant pressure from the Soviet Union in the east and combined Anglo-American forces in the west. But with all the resources he had acquired from his European conquests, Hitler believed he was capable of winning a two-front war. His iron will had taken Germany this far. If his military commanders followed his lead, he was certain they'd emerge victorious. However, his enemies were just as relentless. On the Russian front, Joseph Stalin's forces recovered after the initial German blitz to turn the Battle of Stalingrad into a bloody kill zone. By late November, the Soviet army had surrounded the city. Almost 300,000 of Hitler's men were trapped, and winter was setting in. Outmanned, outgunned, and outmatched, the Germans were unable to repel the Soviet Red Army. By February 1943, the Russians had essentially retaken Stalingrad. Unwilling to order any semblance of retreat, Hitler saw 850,000 of his men killed, injured, or captured. Things were going just as badly in North Africa, where the Allied American and British forces were slowly overcoming stout German and Italian resistance. In May 1943, the Allies forced the Axis to surrender the valuable Mediterranean port of Tunis. From there, Italy and the European continent beckoned. Until this point, the German people had been firmly behind their Führer. But after Hitler's failures in Stalingrad and North Africa, their faith in him began to waver. In addition to the setbacks abroad, the German military was unable to protect its own citizens. In May, Allied bombing raids caused massive damage to the industrial Ruhr district. With major cities like Dusseldorf and Dortmund reduced to little more than rubble, German citizens rightly feared that Hitler was leading them towards annihilation. During propaganda minister Josef Goebbels' tour of these battered cities, official reports noted a near lack of the formerly ubiquitous Heil Hitler greeting. Whereas before criticism had been focused on Hitler's underlings, citizens were now making disparaging remarks about the Fuhrer himself. Losing the rabid support of his people was Hitler's worst nightmare. In his mind, Germany had lost World War I because the domestic support for the conflict had dwindled. He feared another so-called stab in the back that would doom his military ambitions. In the face of his flagging domestic support, Hitler ramped up the Holocaust's genocidal horror. In the month of April 1943 alone, close to 1.5 million Jewish people were sent to the concentration camps. The Jewish deportations were paired with increased anti-Semitic propaganda. He wanted to resurrect the rabid nationalism that had accompanied his rise to power. Hitler also weaponized the Holocaust to bind his allies closer to him. Following his military failures, he encouraged his Romanian and Hungarian counterparts to escalate the mistreatment of their Jewish citizens. By bringing them into the so-called final solution, Hitler was using a tactic called the burned boats. 
It referred to the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés, who burned his ships upon landing in Mexico in 1519. Without the possibility of retreat, he forced his men to move ruthlessly forward in their conquest of the Aztec Empire. Similarly, Hitler wanted to force his allies forward by getting them to commit unforgivable crimes against humanity. If they participated in genocide, there was no way the allies would show them mercy. Therefore, they'd be forced to pursue victory at all costs. However, his strong-arm tactics had little galvanizing effect. On July 5, 1943, Hitler launched another disastrous offensive on the Eastern Front. On the 10th, Allied forces landed in Italy. On the 19th, they conducted their first air raid on Rome. A week later, Hitler's key ally, Benito Mussolini, was deposed as the Italian prime minister and arrested. In order to stop the Allied advance, Hitler was forced to use troops he could barely spare to occupy Italy. Mussolini's shocking removal further weakened Hitler's domestic position as well. The Italian dictator's regime had seemed ironclad. Suddenly, Hitler's supporters at home were forced to confront the idea that something similar could happen in Germany. And his opponents realized that Hitler wasn't as invincible as he seemed. With a sizable German force tied up in Italy, the Soviet Union was able to mount a rapid offensive. By the end of the year, Hitler had lost the vast stores of Ukraine's grain supply, along with significant industrial production. Things were looking just as bad in the West. After the Allies' success in North Africa, they regathered many of their forces in England. In late 1943, Hitler became certain they'd attempt to make landfall in France sometime in early 1944. But instead of focusing on shoring up his Western defenses, Hitler was forced to spend the beginning of the year dealing with one of his own allies. In February 1944, he began to suspect that the Hungarians were going to defect to the other side. To prevent that, he had to divert valuable troops from France to occupy his own allies' territory in Hungary. The Nazis' weakened military presence in the West gave them little chance to repel the June 6th Allied assault on France, otherwise known as D-Day. Except for the bloodbath on Omaha Beach that has been immortalized in media like Saving Private Ryan, the Allies met little resistance along the beaches of Normandy. By the end of the day, around 156,000 Allied soldiers had made landfall. Hitler now had to contend with enemies coming east from France, north from Italy, and west from the Soviet Union. It was a hopeless position, but Hitler refused to yield. He was determined to fight to the bitter end. However, not everyone agreed with his decision. Even before D-Day, Germany had suffered significant civilian losses from Allied air raids. Now that the enemy was approaching on all sides, the damage would only get worse unless the Germans gave up the fight. For years, Hitler's hold over Germany had been unbreakable. It wasn't just that the Nazis' violent repression kept the people in check. His power was boosted by the unwavering support for his anti-Semitic nationalist policies. But now he was letting his supporters die by the thousands, all in the name of an unwinnable fight. 
With Hitler refusing to even consider surrender, a group of officers decided to take matters into their own hands. The only way to end the fighting was to depose the Fuhrer. And the only way to do that was to kill him. In July 1944, they got their chance. On the 20th, one of the conspirators managed to plant a bomb under the table in a military briefing room. It went off as Hitler was leaning directly over it. Four men died in the blast. Hitler wasn't one of them. Somehow he escaped with only superficial injuries. But unlike the failed attempt on his life in 1939, this bombing did little to boost Hitler's image with the public. If anything, his brutal retaliation against the people involved only widened the chasm between him and the German people. As resolve wavered in the face of the Allied advance, Hitler grew convinced that the German people didn't deserve his visionary leadership. Everything he had done was in the name of the Aryan race, and they had proved too weak to rise up to the challenge. In short, they deserved to be annihilated. And that's what was about to happen. By late 1944, the Soviet army was still marching ruthlessly through German territory. The only hope the German people had left was that the Allies would save them from being wiped out. But there was no reprieve coming from the Western powers. Hitler's burned boats strategy had worked, for better or worse. As the Allies pushed into Germany, they discovered the horrific truths of the Holocaust. There was little pity for the foreign leaders who had stood by and allowed millions of innocent people to be slaughtered. With the German army still fighting for every square inch of land, the war dragged on into 1945. But on April 20th, Hitler's 56th birthday, he received the news that the Soviet Red Army had reached Berlin. Holed up in an underground bunker beneath the capital, Hitler still had the chance to make a run for it. But despite his underling's pleas, he refused to leave. Over the next 10 days, the Soviet troops slowly chipped away at the German defenses. By April 30th, they were less than 500 meters away from Hitler's bunker. There would be no rescue, no last-minute heroics. The enemy was practically knocking on Hitler's door. Determined not to fall into Bolshevik hands, he killed himself with a gunshot to the head. Hitler's remaining sycophants burned his body just a few feet outside the bunker door. With artillery shells raining down around them, they only stayed above ground long enough to make sure the corpse caught fire. In the end, nobody witnessed the funeral of a man who had held sway over millions of people. His body burned amongst the ruins of a government he had single-handedly dismantled. The empire he had envisioned was reduced to a few square meters, conquered by the enemies he had failed to destroy. Hitler was dead, and with him, the Third Reich. After Hitler's death, his designated successor immediately surrendered to the Allies. Left with zero bargaining power, 
Germany was carved up between Western European powers and the Soviet Union. It wouldn't become a unified nation until the Berlin Wall fell in November 1991. Many of his underlings followed Hitler's example and committed suicide rather than be taken alive. Those who were captured went on trial for crimes against humanity. The vast majority were sentenced to death. But the stain of the Nazi party may never be fully washed out. Holocaust deniers, neo-Nazis, the KKK, and other white supremacist groups still carry Hitler's insidious legacy. And if we're not vigilant, the spirit of Hitler's movement could rise again. Thanks for listening to Dictators. We'll be back next Tuesday with the first episode of a new season. For the next six weeks, we're going back to the medieval age to look at three infamous conquerors, Ivan the Terrible, Genghis Khan, and Vlad the Impaler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Dictators, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. <laughs>